0: Father, as we once again climb Calvary's hill, there to behold the bleeding, dying branch man and prophet and priest and king, Jesus of Nazareth, we pray your spirit's attendance over your word, your attendance with us. Lord, would you nullify the deadening influences of culture that we all swim in during the week and cause cracks of glory and shards of light to shine on our consciences, on our hearts and minds, Lord, and if it be your will this morning, we're praying that you would save someone, that you would bring someone to yourself, to your heart, by seeing the cross of Jesus Christ, beholding the Savior there and trusting in the blood. We pray in Jesus' name and for your sake. Amen. On the 13th of January, 1982, an airplane carrying 79 people crashed just after it took off from Washington National Airport. The 737 started plummeting once it reached about 350 feet. It first careened into a bridge where four motorists were killed, and then the plane continued forward and downward into the partially frozen waters of the Potomac River. The plane broke up and most of it sank to the bottom of the river immediately, but part of the tail section of the aircraft remained floating, And clinging to that tail section were the six people who survived the crash. The six of them waited about 20 minutes in the frigid cold until a rescue helicopter finally arrived on the scene. The chopper lowered a steel cable and a life ring down to the desperate crash survivors, and the first man was taken up on the cable to safety in the helicopter. The cable came down a second time, and this time a 46-year-old bank executive named Arland Williams grabbed it. But instead of using it for himself, Williams passed it on to another survivor, a woman, and she was taken up to safety in the helicopter. The line came down a third time, and again, Arlen Williams caught it, but gave it up, gave it away to another survivor. And then a fourth time, Williams caught the line, gave it away to another person so that that person could be saved. And a fifth time, same thing. Finally, five people were up in the helicopter, and only Arlen Williams remained clinging to the tail section of the airplane floating in the icy waters, but the helicopter left because it was full. It flew the five passengers to safety. And in the meantime, as Arlen Williams hung clinging for dear life to that shard of the airplane in the Potomac, suddenly the peace shifted and already weak and injured and numbed out by the cold, Arlen Williams was dragged down with the piece as it sank to the bottom of the river. By the time the helicopter came back to rescue him, he was gone. The epilogue of the story of Arlen Williams is that he had a bridge named after him for his heroism, he had an elementary school named after him also, and someone even wrote and recorded a song in his honor. Now, friends, if you're like me, almost automatically you find the actions of Arlen Williams that day in the Potomac to be extraordinary and noble and virtuous and very endearing. Here was a man who literally sacrificed his own safety and comfort for the sake of others. Here was a man who ended up dying because of his insistence that others be saved. There's something about stories of sacrifice, is there not? As human beings, we tend to find such stories, and especially stories of self-sacrifice, to be noble, to be very honorable. So should it be any surprise then... For us to find that the pages of the Bible that God has given to us, the pages of the Bible are saturated with stories of sacrifice. God knows that there's something noble and something endearing about the very concept of sacrifice and of sacrificial love. Now, the records of religious sacrifice date back to the earliest times of human history. We have records of sacrificial rites from a variety of ancient cultures and ancient religions. Oftentimes, people offered sacrifices to a god out of a posture of fear. You hoped that your offering would appease the wrath ...of a certain God, or maybe your offering was given out of a spirit of repentance. You knew that you had offended a certain God and wanted to earn his favor again. At other times in ancient cultures, it could be more of a friendly thing. You offered up to your God a sacrifice of food or oil or an animal out of simple gratitude to that God, as a gift to the God for favors that you had received, or maybe as a sign that you would continue to depend on that particular God. The point is that religious sacrifice is documented in several ancient texts. In the Bible, and I hope you have a Bible in front of you now, In the Bible, sacrifice shows up very early in the narrative, in the story. It's interesting that in Genesis 2, God threatened death to the person who would eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Adam and Eve did eat from that tree, so by all rights then, they should have incurred God's penalty of death. But then, in Genesis 3 21. what we find there is that an animal dies for the benefit of Adam and Eve. The animal dies so that the couple can be clothed in grace with the hide of the animal. An early hint there in the early pages of scripture, perhaps an early hint of the idea of substitutionary sacrificial death, An idea that will blossom out and flower as the Bible unfolds. In Genesis 4, of course, we have a further development of the concept of sacrifice as Cain brings to God an offering of fruit from the ground, we remember, while Abel brings animals. In Genesis chapter 8, after the flood subsides, Noah does what? He builds an altar to God, and he offers there sacrificial burnt offerings, which pleases the Lord. And then we have the famous patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They build altars in a variety of places, and they offer several sacrifices to God, including... Famously, Abraham offering his own son in Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 15, very importantly, several animals there are sacrificed. They are cut in two, and God passes between the pieces of the sacrificial animals in that great moment when he makes covenant with Abraham. And then into Exodus, there is a further development in the biblical concept of sacrifice as the Passover lamb, who is called, incidentally, a sacrifice in Exodus twelve twenty-seven. The Passover lamb serves to do what? To avert the wrath of God while acting as a stand-in for the firstborn of Israel. And then over in Exodus 24, as it had been in the covenant-making ceremony with Abraham, the covenant with Moses and Israel is confirmed with the sacrifice of bulls and other burnt offerings. When we get to Leviticus, we only get three verses into the book, and what we find in verse 3 of chapter 1 is this absolutely crucial fact. Namely, that sacrifice to God is necessary if one would be accepted by God. I'll say that again because it's so important. Leviticus 1.3 teaches us that sacrifice to God is necessary if one would be accepted by God. Notice that last sentence of Leviticus 1.3. He that is, any member of the community of Israel, he shall bring it, that is, shall bring his sacrificial animal to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. That he may be accepted before the Lord. Friends, God will not accept sinful human beings without a God-ordained sacrifice being made first. There is what appears to be an unbridgeable gap between the holiness of God and sinful human beings. The only way that gap can be bridged is through proper sacrifice through animals dying in the Old Testament, as substitutes for sinful human beings who themselves deserve death. And God is the one who, in grace, we need to understand, put in place the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. God wanted... ...a restored and harmonious relationship with his human creatures... ...and the way that God ordained for that restored relationship to come about... ...to become a reality was the way of sacrifice. Now what I want to do with the bulk of our time this morning... ...is to have us zero in on a specific sacrificial ceremony... ...that was really the most central sacrificial ceremony in the life of ancient Israel. And that is the Day of Atonement ceremony outlined for us in Leviticus 16. So turn to Leviticus 16. The Day of Atonement ceremony. Now when we use that word atonement here, what we're talking about is a reparation that needed to happen because of sin. The word atonement originally meant at-one-ment. At-one-ment. It has to do with making two estranged parties at one again. And in the context of the Bible, that one-ment is between a holy God and sinful human beings, and it happens by God providing a way of reparation for the human sin problem that we talked about last week. But what was the Day of Atonement ceremony all about? Well, first of all, we need to understand the Day of Atonement, listen carefully, issued from the gracious heart of God. We need to understand that. It was an annual day instituted straight out of the gracious heart of Almighty God. The Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, as we call it, was the single day of the year organized and rubber-stamped by God himself when all the sins that people were polluted with could be cleansed and could be taken away. And it was a day when all the pollution that had resulted from sinners could be cleansed and removed from the tent of meeting, from the tabernacle, all with the goal, you see, of allowing the Holy God to continue to dwell and commune in the tabernacle with his sinful people. The Day of Atonement was God's plan to have God remain in fellowship with his people. And the Day of Atonement was a solemn day. So solemn, in fact, that according to Leviticus 23.30, God threatened destruction... On any person who dared to work on that day. The day was to be set aside as a holy day. As a day reserved for observing what God had commanded. Now in meditating on the ancient day of atonement. We learn a number of lessons. And I want you to hear these lessons very well. First we learn much here about the holiness of God. The holiness of God. We learn As Leviticus 1 began to teach us that no person, no matter who he or she is, can approach this holy God without proper atonement being made. Second, the Day of Atonement teaches us a great deal about the gravity of human sin. So grave is human sin that the death of animals is necessary to punish it. Shed blood is necessary to forgive it. Now I fear that some Christians today, myself included, may have become sort of bored or unaffected when it comes to the notion of blood sacrifice for sin. We've just heard about it too many times and we just kind of yawn now. Gordon Wenham is an Old Testament theologian who helps us, I think, to regain a sense of awe at the terrible cost that had to be paid because of human sin. He says, quote, It is easy to sing, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. But to bring a whole bull, kill it, skin it, and chop it up, and then watch the whole lot burn on the altar would be quite another matter. Yes the Old Testament, listen, it was necessary for you, the sinner, to slaughter and butcher and burn animals because of your own sin. It was a costly and a decidedly troubling thing, I would say, to offer animal sacrifices for your sin. So the Day of Atonement ceremony, which called for the use of no less than five separate animals, teaches us a great deal about the gravity of human sin. That's the second thing that the Day of Atonement teaches us. And then in third place, as we meditate on this Day of Atonement ceremony, we've already alluded to this, the Day of Atonement also teaches us wonderful things about the grace of God how God provided all by himself a way for his justice against sin to be met, a way for his people to be mercifully cleansed of their defilements, all in the interests of God maintaining communion and relationship and fellowship with us. Well, listen for those three lessons of God's holiness, the gravity of human sin, and God's gracious provision as we walk through now some of the basic mechanics of the Day of Atonement. What exactly was it that happened on this great and solemn day? Well, for starters, the high priest who officiated the ceremony, Aaron, was to take a bath, after which... He would dress himself in more modest fashion than was normal. That is to say, instead of Aaron wearing the grand, spectacular robes of the high priest's office that suggested his authority in the community, the robes that he typically wore when he was speaking to the people on behalf of God, now, on the Day of Atonement, Aaron... Dressed down. He wore plain white linens. Why? Because now he would go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle where God dwelt. God was enthroned between the cherubim on the covenant chest. And it was God who deserved all the honor. It was God who had All authority, not any human priest, including the high priest. So Aaron dressed down for the occasion. He humbled himself as he ventured into the presence of the king. Aaron was to take a young bull, which had the highest value of all the sacrificial animals. He was to take a young bull and offer it sacrificially, slay it, In order to do what? In order to atone, we need to understand, for Aaron's own sins and for the sins of the wider priesthood. What we notice in Leviticus 16 is that repeatedly, like 11 times in the chapter, we have phrases like these. For himself, for Aaron. For his house. For the priests. All that repetition underlines the fact that before anything of a redemptive nature could happen for the greater community of Israel, Aaron the high priest had to undertake sacrificial rites for himself and for the other priests of Israel. Atonement for the sins of the clergy had to happen before atonement for the lay people of Israel could happen. Aaron the high priest was a sinner who needed the atonement that God was providing here just as much as anybody else did. Well, after the slaying of the bull, Aaron was to take some of its blood into the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could enter and only once per year on this Day of Atonement. Aaron was to sprinkle the blood of the bull on the atonement cover that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the atonement cover, was the place of atonement, and Aaron was to sprinkle the bull's blood on it even while that place of atonement was obscured from his view by the smoke of incense, which Aaron also was to bring into the Holy of Holies. The purpose of the smoke was to hide Aaron's eyes from the holy presence of God, which resided there on on top of the atonement cover. God did not want Aaron dead by catching full sight of God and so the smoke. So the blood of the bull was sprinkled on the atonement cover and what we need to note very well here is this, friends. We need to note what Aaron does not sprinkle on the atonement cover. Aaron sprinkles blood there. He does not bring... To use the words of Colin Smith, Aaron does not bring either a test tube of tears representing the repentance of the people, nor does Aaron bring rags soaked in sweat representing the effort of the people. No. Tears for repentance and the sweat of effort and good works do not satisfy the justice of God that must be meted out on human sin. Sacrificial blood satisfies that requirement. Atoning blood does. And so Aaron brings blood and sprinkles it on the atonement cover. Now, along with the bull... Aaron was to take two different goats, one to be chosen by lots and set aside for slaughter. The sacrificial slaughter of that first goat would serve to atone for the sins of the wider community of Israel. And the second goat was to be set aside for another purpose that we want to talk about in just a minute. But the first goat was slaughtered as a sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel. And some of its blood was to be brought by Aaron a second time into the Holy of Holies, sprinkled on the atonement cover, and also then sprinkled seven times in front of the ark, making atonement for the wider community, for the people of Israel. And then the blood of both the slain bull and the slain goat was to be put on the horns of the bronze altar in the tabernacle courtyard, signifying the fact that the altar had to be cleansed from the defilements of both the priest and his pollution and the people's pollution. This was followed by further sprinkling until finally the remains of both sacrificial bull and sacrificial goat were taken outside the camp Burnt by an appointee, and the appointee had to be sure to wash himself before he came back to the camp. Now, where that second goat is concerned, it was in William Tyndale's English Bible of 1530 where he coined the term scapegoat as he described this second goat of the Day of Atonement. And from Tyndale's word, escape goat, comes our somewhat shortened English word, scapegoat. Why did William Tyndale call this second goat an escape goat? Well, remember that the first goat did not escape with its life. The first goat of the Day of Atonement gets slaughtered as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of Israel, but the second goat... Does escape with its life. The second goat is set free in the wilderness. But here's what happens first. Aaron, the high priest, was to lay both his hands on the head of the second goat and laying the hands on like this in the Bible means that something is going to be transmitted or transferred onto the thing that you're laying hands on whether blessing or curse, Aaron lays hands on the scapegoat, the second goat, and Aaron, according to Leviticus 16.21, confesses over the goat all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. The guilt of sin is transferred onto the second goat. The second goat would become a sin-bearer. There's a section in the Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish oral tradition dating later than the Old Testament, but nevertheless still very important. The section of the Mishnah suggests the wording of what Aaron said here as he laid hands on the goat's head and confessed the sins of Israel. I'm going to read it to you. O Lord, your people, the house of Israel, have committed iniquity, transgressed, and sinned before you. O, by the Lord, grant atonement, I pray, for the iniquities and transgressions and sins that your people, the house of Israel, have committed and transgressed and sinned before you. As it is written in the Torah of your servant Moses, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to purify you of all your sins. Thus shall you become pure before the Lord. After Aaron's confession, the scapegoat was then taken by the appointee to be set loose in the wilderness, probably in some rocky gorge area, that was specifically chosen to ensure that the goat would never come back into the camp. The idea was the second goat would remove the sins of the people from the camp. The goat would bear on itself all the iniquities of the people, to quote Leviticus 16.22. It would be loaded up with the sin of Israel and driven outside the camp into the wilderness. Now, down in Leviticus 16.24, we have the remaining two animals, the two that are left now, the two rams. They are offered up as burnt offerings. But as the Old Testament theologian Paul House has noted, by the time we get to the end of verse 22, in other words, by the time the second goat is driven out into the desert, he says, total atonement has been achieved. No condemnation or guilt remains. And God's grace and mercy have overcome sin and its partner, guilt. Any fears about unacknowledged, unintentional, or inadvertent sins are removed, and the joy of reconciliation and friendship emerge. Okay. So the reason we've labored as long as we have over the details of the Day of Atonement ceremonies is this. I want you to listen carefully. That if we grasp the nature of the sacrifices there, if we grasp the nature of the tasks that the high priest Aaron was to carry out there, if we understand the reasons for the Day of Atonement ceremonies and the intended effect of those ceremonies, and if we relate all of that to the cross of Jesus Christ, then the cross will become for us all the more massive and glorious and beautiful and humbling and awe-inspiring. This is a sermon series on the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's see now how the Day of Atonement and its sacrificial character are picked up and amplified and escalated in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. About 500 years or so before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Zechariah prophesied that a ruler. Would come A king in Israel. And this king, said Zechariah the prophet, would also be a priest. That's Zechariah 6.13. And then Psalm 110 that we looked at a few weeks back in our series on the Psalms. Psalm 110 also prophesied a priest king, didn't it? Who would come in the order not of Aaron, the high priest, but in the order of Melchizedek. And in the days when this priest-king would come, said Ezekiel, in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five through 27 in the days of this priest-king, God would cleanse people of all their uncleanness and God would give people a new heart and a new spirit. You see, the old covenant, friends, the Old Covenant and Aaron and the priesthood and the sacrifices, even the Day of Atonement ceremony itself, all of these were limited in their power and limited in their effectiveness. As Hebrews 10.4 says, it was in fact impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins as sins needed to be taken away. And as Hebrews 9.9 9 tells us, the old covenant sacrifices could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So what was needed then? A new and better covenant was needed. A new and better priest was needed. A new and better sacrifice was needed. A new and better day of atonement. Was needed. And so Jesus, the prophesied priest king, comes. And in coming to this earth, Jesus lays aside his rightful, grand, authoritative, divine, and eternal clothing, as it were. He puts aside his clothing and puts on the plain white linens. In the language of Philippians 2, the eternal Jesus emptied himself and took the form of a servant born in the likeness of men. Jesus is born not with a bunch of bling around him, But he's born in swaddling clothes. And Jesus, the priest king, is born for the ultimate purpose of dying on the cross. The cross, listen carefully, is where Jesus does his priestly work. And the cross is where the father also does his priestly work. One of the primary functions of priests in the Old Testament is that they give sacrificial offerings. They give up sacrificial offerings on behalf of others. Well, listen again carefully to the first part of John 3.16. For God, the Father, so loved the world that he what? He gave. His only Son. When the Father gives Jesus up on the cross, the Father is doing priestly work. He is giving up a sacrificial offering. His own Son. And listen to Romans 8.32. The Father did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Again, the Father does priestly work in giving this sacrificial offering, Jesus, on the cross. But at the very same time, friends, the Son, Jesus, is also doing priestly work on the cross. The Son acts as priest, speaking of himself and what he came to earth to do. Jesus said in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to Give his life as a ransom for many. Priests give sacrificial lives up on the altar. Jesus as priest gives not a bull, not any goat on the altar, but rather his own life is given up on the altar. Ephesians 5.2 uses the language of Christ loving us and giving himself up for us. Again, that's priestly language. Jesus gives his sacrifice and he gives it willingly and with joy at the cross. And the sacrifice is himself. And the Father gives his sacrifice at the cross, his own son, because the Father, like the Son so loves the world who need the atonement that's being worked on the cross that they give it. Father and Son act as priests at the cross so that as Donald MacLeod has pointed out, listen, Golgotha or Calvary becomes the tabernacle or temple of God where God in the persons of Father and Son are giving an atoning sacrifice for our sake. The cross is God's sacrificial altar, and God's own Son is the sacrifice who covers human sin. But you see, unlike Aaron, unlike Aaron who administered the slaying of sacrificial bulls and goats and rams, all of those animals other than Aaron, outside of Aaron. They are beings other than Aaron. Jesus acts not only as the officiating priest at the cross, Jesus also acts as the thing sacrificed itself, himself. Jesus is both priest and he is sacrificial victim. We might put it like this. The cross of Jesus is... God requiring a sacrificial lamb to atone for human sin. And it is God providing that sacrificial lamb. But here's the mind-blowing thing, friends. The mind-blowing thing is that God on the cross provides the sacrificial lamb. Listen. He provides the sacrificial lamb from within Himself. The second person of the Trinity, even while Himself feeling the offense of human sin, is offered up by the Father and offers Himself up as the sacrificial lamb for human sin, as the one who takes away the sin of the world. On the cross we have the atoning blood, not of bulls, not of goats any longer, but the atoning blood of God. Amen? Amen. God requires blood to atone for human sin. And God sheds his own blood for that purpose. And if you think I'm going perhaps too far in saying that the blood of the cross is God's blood, well, then you can argue with the Apostle Paul who said as much in Acts 20. Verse 28, Paul, speaking to the elders of Ephesus, Ephesus, said, said this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Listen. To care for the church of God, which he, God, obtained with his own blood. God's own blood obtains the church saves the church, is sacrificed for the church. And this bloodshed of God happened on what's called Good Friday, which is the new and better Day of Atonement. How is Good Friday better than the Old Testament Day of Atonement? Well, we saw today that Aaron, on the Day of Atonement, had to first offer a sacrificial bull for his own sin and for the sin of the priesthood. Aaron was guilty of sin and his sin and the sin of the priesthood had to be atoned for. But on Good Friday, there was no need for the high priest Jesus to offer any sacrificial anything for himself. Because as Hebrews 4.15 says, this high priest Jesus is without sin. Jesus is a better high priest than Aaron. Jesus is blameless and sinless in a way that Aaron and all of the successors of Aaron never were. And where Aaron had to come once every year on the Day of Atonement to offer annual bull after annual bull and annual goat after annual goat, Jesus, with his single Good Friday sacrifice offered, in the words of Hebrews 10.12, He offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. There is now no need for repeated animal sacrifices. Good Friday is better, infinitely better, than the Old Testament Day of Atonement. And where Aaron got old and died and had to hand off his high priesthood to a successor, Jesus, says Hebrews 7.24 holds His priesthood forever because He continues forever. The priesthood of Jesus is eternal. It is indestructible. And Jesus entered into a better sanctuary than Aaron did. Aaron entered into the earthly tabernacle on the Day of Atonement, but Jesus, by His self-sacrifice, by His own blood, entered the heavenly sanctuary, the true tent now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, says the writer of Hebrews. And Jesus mediates a better covenant than Aaron did, with better promises than Aaron had, according to Hebrews 8, six. Good Friday is a new and better day of atonement, and Jesus is a new and better high priest. The offering of the priest's own lifeblood as the sacrifice for sins, past, present, and future, was something Aaron would have never dreamed possible. Nor would Aaron fathom that the priest himself would become the new and better second goat. You remember the second goat in the Day of Atonement ceremony? The goat that had sins laid on it, that was driven outside the camp, Well, speaking of Jesus the Messiah, the prophet Isaiah had said that Jesus would bear bear our griefs and carry our sorrows that on him would be laid The iniquity of us all, like the second goat. Jesus is the true sin bearer that the second goat only pointed to. And Jesus suffered on his cross outside city limits, according to Hebrews 13.12. Outside the camp, according to Hebrews 13.13. Better than the goat driven outside the camp bearing the sins of Israel is Jesus who bears and takes away the sin and guilt of the world. He dies outside the camp. Good Friday is a new and better day of atonement and Jesus is a new and better high priest and a new and better sacrifice. We said near the beginning today as we looked at Leviticus 1.3, And then also as we unpack the Day of Atonement, that sacrifice to God is necessary if one would be accepted by God. Do you know that that fact remains true this very day? Only by the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross can we be forgiven and made acceptable to God. Only by the shed blood of Jesus can our hearts be cleansed from an evil conscience, to use the terms of Hebrews 10.22. Our repentance by itself and or the sweat of our efforts to make ourselves right with God by themselves will not, I repeat, not make us right with God. Only the sacrificial blood of the Lamb can do that. And the Holy God has graciously provided that sacrificial Lamb from within Himself to cleanse us and redeem us and set us free from our sin. If you're a person here this morning who has not yet trusted the priest-king Jesus as your Savior, if you've not yet received Him, As the only one who gives you the cable and the life ring that you need. The one who has died in your place so that you can be pulled to safety. If you've yet to know him as the only one through whom you can come to God, I would love for you to approach me or one of the deacons after this service so that we can talk with you and pray with you and pray over you and get some literature into your hands. For now, let's pray. Father, it is impossible for us by our own efforts and by our own steam, whatever that might look like, to be right with you. It is only through and by the provision that you have given, the blood of Jesus Christ, that we can be cleansed and made right and forgiven, given your righteousness, which you provide to us in grace. Father, I pray that this message would take root in someone's mind and heart this morning who does not yet know you, who is not in a saving relationship with you, who has yet to be born again, and that you, by your Holy Spirit, we pray in faith, would do that, would bring a lost sinner into your family and be set free this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, walk with us this week. Amen.